in this series that I've titled Unstoppable, we're going through the book of Acts uh, and going chapter through chapter, basically, and getting an understanding of Jesus's continual work in the world through his church, through his disciples. In Acts chapter 12, we, st- we see a new development in church history. Uh, we see a new way that the church will take shape, uh, a new way that it will expand, and a new way it will start to understand itself in the world and God's use of, uh, and work through it in the world. There's a new development in church history, and this is how, this is how chapter 12 begins. The first two verses... It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Uh, This is not the first martyrdom of a Christ follower. That happened with Stephen in Acts. Uh, but, But this is the first martyrdom of an apostle. King Herod, don't think of of Herod the Great in the time of Jesus when the Magi came from the east and, and, and told him a king had been born king of the Jews. And he was concerned about that. And so in response, he had all the toddlers to and under killed. This, this is not the same Herod. That was Herod the Great, this Herod's grandpa. So this is the grandson of that Herod. And he has martyred by beheading the Apostle James, one of the twelve. In the first eight chapters of Acts, we see the church being given birth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see its success. We see its great favor. And chapter 8 begins a transition with persecution in the martyrdom of Stephen, the church being scattered throughout the known world, but it's still powerful. Chapter 12 is a transition because in chapter 12, the illusion that the apostles are specially protected is shattered. See, up to this point, the apostles, those close, the, the disciples of Jesus, other than Judas, the 11 left, and they chose Matthias to take his place. So these apostles, they kind of felt as though, and the church kind of felt as though, that they were the special ones, the apostles, and they had a special protection over them. Well, the fact that one of them could be martyred was very concerning. And it was very concerning that it was James who was martyred. And here's why. Because James was one of Jesus' three favorites. All through the gospel, it talks about the 12 and then the three. Peter, it's always listed first, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. They were so close to Jesus that, God, that Jesus gave them a nickname, the sons of thunder. you got to be pretty close to someone to give them a nickname. And the fact that this favored apostle and friend of Jesus would be martyred, It shattered the illusion that if you're right with God and he's pleased with you, you're protected. 
Jesus promises no special protection for even his closest followers. We have to understand this. And this flies in the face of most religion and even Christian churches and their teaching. Because what's taught, either explicitly or implicitly, that if I'm doing things right and God is pleased with me, he's going to protect me and bless me, yeah? I want you to realize Jesus' warning to his disciples. Before he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, he sat them down and says, I want you to understand what it will mean for you if you be my disciple, if you follow me. So, so we're going to read this. And as I read this, just consider, if this is what you were promised, are you still going to sign up with him? Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils to be and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. In other words, he's saying, I am your teacher. You're not ahead of me. If this is going to happen to me, it's going to happen to you. If the head of the house has been called bills above, how much more the members of his household. He's saying, look, if you follow me, this is, going, this is how this thing's going to play out. If we knew that on the front end, I wonder how many would say, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what I have in mind by following you. When James was beheaded, the Jewish historian Eusebius relates the story from Clement of Alexandria. And Clement of Alexandria says of the beheading of James, it went down like this. James was so powerful in his testimony and witness to Christ in the process leading up to his beheading that the soldier that was in charge of following him accepted Christ as a result of James' witness and was beheaded right next to him alongside him. unstoppable even in death. Verses 3 and 4. When he, Herod, saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. He's a politician. If it makes people happy, I'll do whatever makes them happy. I just want to keep my power. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Normally, a prisoner was guarded by two guards. One they were shackled to and one outside the prison gate, outside his cell. Peter has that doubled. He shackled one on each side, so two shackled, and then one 
on the inner cell and one on the outer cell. So four gods, guards, uh, in rotations of four guards. So 16 total assigned to this one man. Why so much? Well, apparently Herod had read Acts 5. Because Peter was arrested once before and miraculously got out. And so here is like, oh, okay, now, no, 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 no. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I ain't letting that happen again. And so doubles his guard. Now, so Peter was kept in, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Understand this. While every other door is locked, the door to heaven is opened by prayer. I want you to notice how the church was praying. What did it say? Earnestly. That's an important word. Earnestly means this. Let me ask you this question before I tell you what it means. Who wrote the book of Luke? Who? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, he, he's the same author for both those. What was Luke's profession? He was a doctor. So when Luke uses the word earnestly, it's a medical term that indicates a muscle being stretched to its full extent. If you stretch it anymore, it's going to snap. That's what this word earnestly means literally. It's a medical term. He's saying the church is was 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 so engrossed in this, like they were stretching themselves to the extent they couldn't give anymore in prayer. It's the same word used of Jesus in Gethsemane when he prayed drop and drops of blood dripped from him. That's earnestly. To pray earnestly has power not because the emotion of the disciple persuades a reluctant God. That's not why earnest prayer is powerful. Earnest prayer is powerful because the earnesty is a demonstration of the heart's passionate desire for the kingdom of God to be manifested. It's not that those who are earnest in prayer, God responds when he really doesn't want to, but because they're so emotional, God goes and does it. That's emotionalism, and that's ridiculous. We can't manipulate God by our emotion. But what it does indicate is that there is such an internal passionate desire for the kingdom of God to be manifested in the world. This, it comes with this incredible emotion. Do you understand that? And I just wonder... How much of our prayers lack kingdom power because they lack that kind of earnestness? To spiritually being stretched to the point where I'm going to break. I've been around a lot of Christians a long time and sometimes it feels like Christians' prayers are nothing more but a business transaction. I'm going to state the facts. I'm going to make my request. I'm getting out. It's just so businesslike. God, here's what's going on. Here's what I need. And, and some people's prayers, it doesn't sound any different than when they're talking to somebody else. I mean, when's the last time where there was so much 
earnest passion in the prayer where there was just a weeping of the heart and the spirit, not in an effort to manipulate, but just, God, I'm just longing for your kingdom, your manifestation. And, and I will, if, if, I don't, if I don't see it, something's going to pop inside. Earnest prayer. Earnestly praying, what's the next two words? To God. There was a deep and profound understanding of the one to whom they were praying. This was Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, on earth, above earth, and under the earth, that he is God. Send some friend and some homeboy and some guy. earnestly praying to God, what's the next two words? For him. They were naming Peter's name before the throne of God because God is a personal God. When you pray on behalf of someone else, you name their name before the throne. This is what the church is doing. So all that's going on. Peter's chained to two guards and two of them outside the cell. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, and the implication is to behead him just like he did with James. Peter was what? He's snoring. Sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. The night before he's executed. He knows what happened to James. He knows his head was, he was decapitated with a sword for doing the same things that, that Peter was arrested for. He knows that in the morning, Herod's going to intervene and enter and say, look, so be it for you. He knows his death by beheading is imminent. And he's sleeping soundly. No worry, no anxiety, no fear. When I was studying this, it compelled this question. What does it take to keep you awake at night? Probably a little less than your beheading. Think about it. What does it take for you to be sleepless? Probably not very much. What causes you so much stress that sleep eludes you? Peter's looking at his beheading. And he sleeps soundly. And so I was thinking about that. I thought, how can I put this in, in simple words that I understand? If I understand it, I know you can too. And here's what I came up with. Full trust in God is proven by one's lack of anxiety. It's the ability, Psalm 46.10, be still. Know that I'm God. Get your hands off it. Get your hands off the circumstance. Get your hands off the outcome. 
and trust my sovereignty with both. And sleep well. You understand? Now, I'm not saying I'm there, but I'm saying that is the instruction and example of Scripture, and that's our standard and our plumb line. I mean, the Bible says of God, he never sleeps nor slumbers. So that means that one of us, he, me or him, is going to be up all night anyway. So I may as well let him do what he does and get some sleep. You're tracking with me, aren't you? Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He was having a dream. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. I love the fact that Luke details this. There's chains, there's locked prison doors, there's four guards, there's shackles, and there's an iron gate, and yet the kingdom is still unstoppable. All this is happening. The church is praying, and Peter is just simply following God's lead. Please understand this that the disciples of Christ are unstoppable when God is before us and there's prayer behind us. I, I love how Luke leads through this process of all of these all of these barriers, and it ultimately leads to an iron gate that's shut and locked. A seemingly insurpassable, impenetrable obstacle lies in the way. I love the fact that that's where God leads Peter. Here's, here, here's how it looks in our lives. Most of us are anxious about iron gates we haven't even come up on yet. Most of us borrow worry and bother anxiety from tomorrow. We haven't got there yet. And many of us live with the anxiety and the fear of the iron gate that might be coming. Listen, God will take care of every iron gate if he wants you to walk through it. You don't have to worry about it. And you certainly don't borrow worry against it in the future. You're not there yet. And when you get there, if God wants you to go through it, he's going to open it. But he will not take care of gates beforehand. He'll wait till you get to the gate so you can trust him before he opens it. When the Bible says it opened by itself, that's the Greek word to automate. It was automated. Peter didn't have to do a thing. When God leads you and I to iron gates, that seem like they're impenetrable and impassable and locked by iron chains. You don't have to push it open. You don't have to kick it down. You don't have to burn it up. 
God will automate it if he wants you to go through it. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about all the iron gates you haven't come to yet. You're not there. When you get there, if God wants it open, you don't got to do nothing. Just let God automate it. Don't stress about how you're going to get through them. Don't worry about if they're going to open or stay shut. Kingdom work is unstoppable. And even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But it begs the question. Chapter 12 started with the disciple James being what? Beheaded. Midway through, we have the apostle Peter being liberated. Why does God allow the beheading of one and cause the liberation of another? Same God, same inner circle, same work. Why does God allow the beheading of one loved one and cause the liberation of another loved one? I don't know. And neither do you. Only God knows what and why God allows what he allows. All I do know is this, that in James's beheading, he graduated to glory. And he didn't feel bad for himself. Do you understand? Because he had this kingdom eternal perspective. The moment I get to leave this dirt clod, I am with God in glory. So don't slow that down. All we know is it was time for James's graduation. And all we know, it wasn't Peter's time yet. And when we walk in step with the Father, kingdom disciples are unstoppable until it's time to graduate to heaven. And I guarantee you, every disciple that has graduated to heaven does not regret being there. Do you understand? Then Peter, he's, he's, he's free. He came to himself like he kind of woke up. He said, now, that I, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, John Mark, where many people had been gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and told everybody, Peter's at the door. So Peter's out of jail. He's walking around. He kind of like wakes up. And he says, now I know that the angel of the Lord has sent to me. That's significant. Because what it tells me is that Jesus is so personally involved with us, he will send his own on our behalf. And we've talked about this in the past. 
how the book of Hebrews says that aren't all angels ministering spirits sent to aid those who are in salvation, Christ followers? And the way the angels are enacted on our behalf, the Bible says, Jesus says, that if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the angels. What had Peter been doing? Acknowledging Jesus before men. And so in his time of need, God acknowledged him before the angels and the angel was dispatched to his saving. This is how it works. So they gathered to pray and Peter knows they're praying. Do you know how powerful it is when their leader knows that his people are praying for him and not working against him? And so Peter's like, man, I can, I'm just going to walk through this. It's not. And they were probably gathered, and the church was probably worried because they know what happened uh, to James. And they were probably concerned that it's going to happen to Peter too. And so they're earnestly seeking God, and, 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 and Peter shows up and knocks on the outer gate. And, and it's later on, they're probably thinking, who in the world is stopping by at this hour? Who ordered the baklava? Anybody who's... Rhoda, go take care of the Uber. Like, come on. She goes out there and realizes it's Peter. And then she leaves him there. She runs back inside. I'm convinced she had to be like a high school cheerleader or something. Like, ah! And Peter's standing there. Have you ever felt like you've been forgotten by those who are supposed to be with you and for you? He just stands there. And I imagine in the, in, the, in the immediacy of it, Peter's heart probably sunk. He's like, oh, really? And then I think he remembered Psalm 46 and just chose to be still. And to relinquish his control over the circumstance and the outcome. And I think he probably just thought back, wait, wait, why am I getting so worked up right now? God just opened a prison door. So he just opened an iron gate. He's not going to have a problem with a garden gate. I'm just going to be patient. And so he stands there and waits. Now, now don't read the verse yet. Look at me. What had they been praying for? Peter's release. They get word, hey, Peter showed up. He's out. Now look at what they said. You're out of your mind. It's like, you're not. no, he's not. When she keep insisting that it was so, they said, no, 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 it must be his angel, which is absolutely ridiculous because now all of a sudden angels sound like Peter. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Have you ever had prayer answered but not believe it was answered? Peter motioned with his hand for them. I just got out of jail. I'm like, shut up. And described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. Uh, and they left for another place. They got word that their prayers had been answered. But they didn't believe their prayers had been answered. I appreciate this. And here's why I appreciate it. 
Because while their prayers were earnest, their faith was faulty. And though their prayers were earnest, but their faith was faulty, God still honored it. And I love that. Here's how I think I can say it in a way that, that we get it. Little faith can accomplish great things when placed in a great God. Faith has more to do with the object it's placed in than the one who's exercising it. Thank God for that. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. No doubt. See, if if you read the rest of, of this chapter, the following verses, it'll say that these soldiers were beheaded, put to death in place of Peter. Because the way it worked in Roman law is that if a soldier was guarding a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, the soldier bore the responsibility and the judgment. And so these soldiers were beheaded. So you better believe, and they knew this was coming. When they showed up in Peter, there was no small commotion. Here's what I was thinking. It is not uncommon to make a commotion. The question is, what do I make a commotion about? It's not uncommon for us to make a commotion, right? Some of you are addicted to commotion. You make a commotion everywhere you go about everything you experience. The question is not about about it being uncommon to make a commotion. That's what we do. The question is, what do I make a commotion about? Here's what I came up with. This This is how I understand it. Kingdom people make a commotion about the kingdom of God. Religious people make a commotion about religious rules that are being broken. Common people make a commotion about other people. It's not uncommon that we make a commotion. The question is, what do you make a commotion about? When we have conversations with each other, what's the commotion? Usually our conversations center around other people. And usually not in a positive way. Kingdom people make a commotion, especially in their conversation, about kingdom things. And I guess boring people don't make any commotion at all. They're boring. You don't make a commotion. It's make it about the right stuff. Here's how I say it. Or here's the question. What kind of commotion are you known for making? the question. What would those in your sphere of influence, those in your huddle, say about the commotions that you most often make? Kingdom stuff or people stuff? On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. 
They shouted, this man, or this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, and the angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> the death of Herod. The Jewish historian Josephus tells this story, this historical account, and he adds some details that we don't get in the Bible. And the Jewish historian says this, that Herod had made for himself a complete garment of pure silver. And he put that on that morning and stepped out in the morning to address the people. The people already had this idea in their culture that their Herod or their, their ruler was godlike or deity. He steps out uh, and the sun radiates off the silver. The light of the sun radiating off the silver blinds them all and it just confirms their superstition. He is a god. And in that moment, Josephus tells us that something happened inside. And worms began to eat him from the inside out for five days before he died. And the reason is why. He tried to usurp God's glory. It was his pride. God is very clear. God will not contend with anyone who tries to rob him of his glory. The prophet Isaiah tells us this, of the Lord, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. We must be very careful about the attention and the glory we choose to desire and want for ourselves. We have to be very careful that our pride and desire to be known and noticed doesn't rob us of the opportunity to reflect God and His glory. And this chapter wraps up like this. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. We're 15 years in of the church's life. The church has been favored. The church has been persecuted. The church has been martyred. The church has been scattered. The church has been imprisoned. The church has been killed. And the church has been freed. All the while, it remains unstoppable. We are part of this grand work of the Almighty God who is orchestrating lives and orchestrating events for His kingdom advance in the world. This is what we're a part of. This is what Christians are a part of. And it will come to a climactic revelation and culmination and the renewal of God's kingdom on a new earth. This is what we're invited into. This is the cloth from which we've been cut. This is the plumb line. This is the standard. This is the invitation. This is the kingdom. What better thing 
could you ever be a part of? Your own agenda? Your own comfort? Your own kingdom? Are you kidding me? This is the purpose of your creation. You and I have been invited to take our lives and put them in the center of this story. You and I have been invited to take all that we are and drop it in the middle of God's story. There's nothing better. There's nothing more significant. There's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more worthwhile than to submit your life to the kingdom of God. It will cost you everything. And you will receive that which you could never purchase. And it is beautiful. You want to jump in? God, you are a good God. And you have called us into this glorious, unstoppable kingdom. Thank you that you would value us so much to call us into your story. Father, sometimes we have gotten so worked up and made such a commotion about such thin and light and trivial things. Forgive us. Some of us in this place truly do want to make a great commotion about a great kingdom. And so hear the hearts of those who do. Friends, I invite you in this moment, if you know, maybe you know Jesus, maybe you're headed to heaven, and that is, that's glorious and fantastic, but you also know that your life has been a lot of commotion about a lot of other stuff. And I invite you in this moment to say, Father, forgive me. I've been tangled up by a lot of stuff. I've allowed my life to have be a big commotion about other things. And I choose this day. I choose this day to make a commotion about your kingdom. And I choose this day to let go and to let drop my control over circumstances and outcomes. Because I trust your sovereignty over both. Some of you have not yet crossed the line of faith with your whole heart 
you've heard, you like. But there's not been a commitment yet. And I invite you in the name of Jesus that this is your day. That you just say, God, I'm jumping in completely. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered me in Jesus. I accept it. And today I'm jumping in with both feet. I want my life to be a big commotion about your unstoppable kingdom and nothing else. Today I choose you because you've already chosen me. Father, thank you that you have heard these prayers. Thank you that you ratify, that you understand, that you accept, and all of them. Pray that you would do what only you can do in the renewal of our hearts and our lives by your Holy Spirit. We choose this day to be a part of your unstoppable kingdom. We're jumping in, God. Do what only you can do. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Listen, I love you. It's so good to open up the Bible together. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. This, this, this is so, this is good stuff. So here's my charge this week. Read chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see a church in Antioch, one of the greatest churches. Incredible ministry that came out of that thing. Incredible people that came out of that. And what we see in Acts 13 is this beginning of this wave of church planting around the world. It's amazing. And it is the standard for the church. And it's, it's what we've built our Excel Leadership Network, our church planning network on. And so, so read the beginnings of this. Read the, read, read, read the whole chapter. And just say, Holy Spirit, what, 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 what is in this for me? Give me understanding. Call me to something of you. Because you will. I'm going to invite you to stand as we um, join together in worship one last time to finish out our morning.